All right, our sermon reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for right now. I thank you for the opportunity to open your word with your people. I thank you for each of these people here and for their hearts for you. I pray that you would bless Alan this morning, that your spirit would rest upon him, and that he would speak your words into our hearts this morning. Father, we want to be salty. We want to be full of light. I pray that you would calm our minds quiet them from all the distractions and busyness, that you would open our hearts to hear your words of life this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Um, We are uh, continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and this week we're um, going to be looking in many ways at Jesus' own commentary and explanation of what he means when he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Because, see, we've taken a couple weeks each on looking at what it means to be both salt and light. But then Jesus here actually adds to these metaphors by saying, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then again, he gives commentary on being the light of the world where he says a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, what I want us to do together this morning is simply to ask, why does Jesus add these explanations? I mean, what is he teaching us here? And I think the first thing that I want us to see from these statements is really how Jesus is pushing us to feel the weight of these metaphors. That being salt and being light are not merely activities that we can take on if we want to really be a good Christian, but it's it's really at the core of who we are. It's It's the essence of what we do as Christians. And I think right away, Jesus is dispelling the notion that, you know, maybe there are some people who are a bit more gifted and called to be salt and light, and then there's the rest of us who just do our normal day-to-day Christian things. No, I think what he's telling us is that having a relationship with the world of actively preserving it from decay and actively shining the light of truth into the world, that's what it means to be a Christian. And there aren't levels of Christianity in this process. See, this is the bottom line for every one of us. It's, It's why we're here. Frankly, it's, it's the only thing that we do. And I think this just makes sense. If the Beatitudes themselves, as we walked through them and saw this, were not merely lists of things that we're supposed to try and become, but rather a description of what citizens of Jesus' kingdom already look like, then it just makes sense that being salt and light 
are the inevitable result of this non-negotiable heart change that he talks about. See, you can't be convinced of your own poverty of spirit um, and, and also be reaching out to Jesus to be the riches that you need for you and then just let quietly live your own quiet Christian life. Because what he, what he says here is now you belong to him. And, and this is his agenda for why you're here. His agenda is that you would engage the world, that you would allow, uh, let's walk through the Beatitudes, that, he would, that you would allow your sorrow over sin to preserve the world from being comfortable blaming everybody else uh, that you're just a victim. That, that you would allow your meekness to preserve the world from the strong always eating the weak. That you would allow your hunger and thirst for righteousness uh, to preserve the world from the folly of believing that you can create your own moral values and just do your own thing. To allow your merciful heart to preserve the world with compassion and understanding instead of pouncing on everybody's mistakes. To allow your attitude of, of peacemaking to preserve the world from destroying one another with a dog-eat-dog -dog competitive world. To, and to really allow your willingness to endure suffering and persecution for living this way to preserve the world from always running from pain and seeking the easiest life possible. And see, the world desperately needs Christians who live as redeemed people. It preserves the world from being as evil and selfish and bitter and angry as it otherwise would be. And this is Jesus' goal for us, is that by living this way, people would begin to reach out and ask us for the hope that drives us to live this way. Why are you like this? Why do you live this way? And then for us to give them the light of the truth, that Jesus has lived the life of perfection that we owe to God, he does it in our place, and that he dies a death that we deserve to die for our rebellion against him. And what this does is it sets us free from the darkness of self-promotion. This is what rescues us from the, the putrid decay of the world around us. We, we have a hope, and it's a hope that we offer to everybody around us. And so Jesus says, that's why you're here. That's the bottom line. It's the essence. It's non-negotiable. So let's move on. Secondly, let's ask, okay, how do we do this? How, do we, how can we live this way? How is a Christian to live in a dark, decaying world that, frankly, hates everything that we stand for? And I think there's two extremes here that Jesus' teaching eliminates as a possibility. And the first is to withdraw from the world and to make ourselves safe from all of its destructive influences. And the second is to attack it, to try and win with our superior moral agenda, to take this nation back for Jesus. Rather, what he says is you are to engage the world as salt and light, which is something different. See, remember what God told the people of Israel in Jeremiah 29 after they had been conquered by uh, the Babylonian army. Uh, a great many of them had been taken captive, uh, not to be put into prison in a foreign land, but to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. And as a result, their hope was that they would teach their fellow Jews how to be tolerant, multicultural people. Uh, that's how the Babylonians conquered the world. Rather than killing everybody, they brought him in and said, become like us, be multicultural, let's just all get along. And so they would assimilate them into their own culture. But what did the Jews do? They withdrew into Jewish ghettos where they could remain pure and untainted by the attempts of the Babylonians to assimilate them. Their attitude was, they are not going to win. 
<laughs> these liberal multiculturalists are not going to delude us. We are going to remain pure. And what did God say to them? He basically says, guys, stop it. Engage them without becoming like them. Right? He says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have called you. Pray for it. Work for its good. Because if it thrives, then everybody is going to thrive. And you see, that's our model. God calls us to preserve this world from decaying faster and deeper into darkness by living lives of salty character, essentially living out the Beatitudes that he's just laid out. And see, this really is our call to engage the culture around us, to invest ourselves into its brokenness and darkness and decay in order to bring healing and, and life and, and order out of the chaos. This is where we, we serve the world to engage in what's often referred to as social justice. It's a major part of what we do. But notice that even though this is what God calls us to do, he also reminds us that, hey, you're never actually going to be able to save the world by caring for the poor and by tending the sick and by healing the broken. No matter what you do, you're always going to have the poor with you. The best that you can hope for is to make your city a better place for everyone who lives there. But Jesus says, the reason that I'm calling you to do this is, is not to win the world for Jesus and to conquer evil by taking over. My goal for you is not to conquer poverty. It's not to eliminate all racial discrimination. It's not to bring equity to all people. But it's so that you might have the opportunity in the midst of that chaos for people to ask you, why are you serving us like this? When you don't agree with any of our lifestyle or any of our choices. Why do you love us? Why do you care? And then listen, the world has set up the scenario where you either agree with and support whatever their sinful choices might be, or else you hate them and you want their destruction. But Jesus as a Christian is supposed to live in such a way that people in the LGBTQ community would say, I know you think what I'm doing is wrong, so why are you loving me like this? Why are you serving me instead of judging me? See, a Christian should be on the front lines of saying, yes, abortion is wrong, while at the same time investing our lives into the women who've chosen that path so that then we could give them a reason for our love, which is Jesus, right? That's why we're here, right? To, to be the light, to let people know the good news, that there's a way to find love and security that actually works and lasts and it doesn't cost you your life or the life of your baby. It costs Jesus his. And he gladly gave it so that you could be rescued. And listen, let me just show you how radically different this model of evangelism is that Jesus is displaying for us here. Because you see, the modern church has typically taught its people to do evangelism like this. It's how I grew up, was taught how to do evangelism. And basically the model, never this crass, but essentially if you get to the bottom line of it is I'm right and you're wrong. I'm on the right side and you're on the wrong side. And what you need to do is to change your mind and be more like me. Think like me, act like me, vote like me, become more like me. But Jesus says, no, no, no. My model is you come alongside people and you say, I get it. I get why you're chasing after that kind of love. I understand why you think that thing is going to bring you security and love. I, I, I see what you're looking for 
while you're chasing after those things. And it's not bad to want love. It's not bad to want security and acceptance. It's not wrong to be wanted, to, to feel valued. And, and I get the temptation to chase after it in those things, but I can tell you from firsthand experience, it doesn't work. You're not gonna find it there, but you will find it in Jesus. And see, this model of evangelism is not so much telling people to stop doing certain bad things, as if they could, as much as offering, the answer, offering them the answers to what they're already looking for. And let, let me just give you an example just to illustrate what I'm talking about. I, you know, why do so many marriages end in divorce? And why do so many marriages that maybe don't end in divorce still struggle so deeply to get along? And I think much of it comes from the fact that our world has basically taught us that marriage is a place where I come to have all of my intimate needs of security met. See, every guy just naturally thinks that this babe is going to rescue me from the boring blandness of my life. And she's going to make me feel loved and special and respected. And every girl just naturally thinks that this hunk is going to protect me from all the, the bad things out there. And he's going to make me feel secure. And it actually works for a little while, but eventually the pressure to bear the full weight of your soul becomes too much for me. And my neediness will begin to crush you under the weight of expectations that nobody could ever carry. And when that happens, our natural response, certainly that of the world, is to say, well, they couldn't bear the weight of my soul. Maybe somebody else can. I just need to keep moving on to the next person until I find somebody who can pull this off for me. But you see, what Jesus tells us is that the weight of your soul is just too much for any other person to carry. Listen to how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 49. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. See, no, no person can save you from yourself. I mean, it, it makes a great movie line to say, you complete me. Oh, doesn't that sound romantic? But as a pattern for living, it's suicide because nobody can bear the weight of having to complete you. But God can, and Jesus did because he actually lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that your rebellion deserved, which means that he can actually bear the weight of your soul, which means that what you're already looking for in that perfect mate or that fulfilling job or that secure financial position only Jesus can provide and he did and you see we do this all over the face of our lives in finding satisfaction in our work in finding security and money in the addictions to buy something new to make me feel new in, in finding fulfillment in finally being married or having a house full of children see this is Jesus model for dealing with everything and, and listen, I want you to back up to see what does all this mean for us? It means that we cannot simply sit back and condemn all the evil of the world around us. There's no place for Christians to be harsh and critical and judgmental and self-righteous and bash the world for all other foolish behavior. You know, so much of the Christian message is stop it. Well, the world can't stop it. It's incapable of stopping it. Rather, what Jesus said is you're meek and you're merciful and you're patient because of how I've been merciful and meek and patient with you, which means that now you come alongside people and offer them the hope for the things that they're already looking for but haven't been able to find in the things of this world. 
and you show them how they can find them in Jesus. See, in other words, the whole purpose of light is to bring light. The whole point of salt is to be salty. And when we forget that and we begin to think that something else might be able to make me happy, we're forgetting our purpose. In fact, Jesus indicates here that it's, it's downright foolish for us to be anything other than salt and light. Salt that's lost its saltiness is not good for anything except to be trampled underfoot. And if you've thrown salt outside on the ground and trampled it underfoot, you realize even there, it brings death. Nothing will grow there. And see, light that doesn't bring light to anybody, it's useless. And I think some people don't have any light to give off because they're Christian in name only. And still others, I think, try to keep that light only for their own personal edification. And they prefer this quiet Christian life that doesn't rock the boat of the culture around us. And Jesus here says, that's ridiculous. And I actually love how he pulls out metaphors here that aptly show us that there's no other practical use of salt. If it's not salty, just throw it out. And there's no other practical use for light if it doesn't have light. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that have other uses if its main use has been taken away, but not salt and light, and not a Christian who only lives for themselves. Listen, our, our culture is filled with people who try to live sanitized versions of the world around them and then show up on Sundays to pay homage to God or maybe to get in touch with those feelings of nostalgia of their youth or maybe even to try to earn a little bit better uh, life for the week ahead. But, but Jesus here says in the clearest terms possible, that's useless. You might as well throw it away. It's no good. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it to Timothy as he was pastoring his church. He said, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. See, a Christian who has no saltiness, a Christian who has no light, is as useless as saltless salt, or as useless as shutting your light in the closet and trying to bring light to your house. And there are far too many people who I think are Christian in name only, or are Christian in their cultural uh, understanding, or, or are Christian because it's the tradition, because it feels familiar, it feels comfortable, it, it brings them some sort of reassurance personally, or maybe it just gives them some rules that they can follow, give me something to do so I can feel better about myself. But they produce no light and no salt in their daily lives. And Jesus' conclusion here is not, oh, well, maybe they're just a carnal Christian and one day they can grow into being a fully functional one. No, in fact, he goes on to say later on in this sermon in chapter seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will, say to, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Listen, you don't have the option of being a private Christian who hides safely in your Christian ghetto or keeps quietly to yourself about your own private religion that doesn't affect the world around you. 
Nor can you be critical and judgmental toward the broken because you think you're better than they are. Just as light brings light to everybody who sits under its rays, so too a Christian cannot be hidden or escape notice. A true Christian will stand out, not because of self-righteousness, but because the righteousness of Jesus covers them and brings them a security that nobody in this world can have. And the only other option that Jesus gives us here, he says, it, 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 it's useless. It, it's, if it's saltless, if it's lightless, you know, just throw it away, cast it off. And I'm not really sure how that works in a warning to Christians. How can God do that? That's a theology that makes my head squirm. I'm not really sure, but it's clearly a solemn warning. So how do we do this? How, how can we make sure that we really do function as salt and light? And I think what's really fascinating here is that if being salt and light is this important to Jesus, you would think that he would give us a list of steps. You know, first do this, and then next do that, and here's, here's the path to follow. But, but he doesn't. Again, what does he say? He gets to this later on in this sermon in chapter 6, where he says, here's how you do it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And what Jesus is telling us is that the way to be salt and the way to be light is to pursue Jesus, to pursue becoming like him. And that just makes sense. To the degree that you pursue Jesus, to that degree, you're going to find your security and your love and your acceptance in what he has done for you. And to that degree, then you can be freed from yourself, free from needing to pursue your own agenda. You're, you're full enough and you're confident enough to look outside of yourself and invest yourself in the lives of those around you. Self-absorbed Christians who are trying to earn favor with God by living good enough or believing deeply enough are worthless at investing in the decay and the darkness around them because they're still trying to fight for their own, but now they're just using religion to do it instead of the things of this world. The, the world desperately needs Christians who are in love with Jesus and who find their security in his love for them. And I've always been fascinated that the Apostle Paul in writing to Christians in Ephesus in writing to people who by their very definition already believe in the love of God for them. And yet this is what he prays for them. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to, all the, uh, to the full measure of all the fullness of God. See, he, what he's saying is, guys, what, what you need to be the salt that preserves the world and what you need to be the light for their darkness is to take the love that God has for you and to dwell on it and to think about it and to meditate on it until it just explodes into a confident assurance that I belong to God and he's never gonna leave me until it leads your heart to rest in what he's done. And I know you know it, but what he's saying is I long for you to really know it. As Hunter said earlier, I long for you to experience, to taste it and to see it so that it transforms you into somebody who is salty and full of light. I mean, this is why Jesus says here in the Beatitudes, citizens of my kingdom will hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
Because when you're seeking Jesus, you don't need the validation that comes from money or career or power or any other successes. See, Christians don't need woke righteousness. They don't need fancy house righteousness. They don't need sex appeal righteousness. They don't need the perfect body righteousness because they already have the righteousness of Jesus. And what he's saying is, guys, you have that, you know that, now seek it, pursue it with every fiber of your being. Seek to become like Jesus. You know, when Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, you guys know how hunger and thirst works. You know, you have to continually go back to them. You, you can't just eat and be satisfied. You're gonna have to do it all over again in a few hours. And I think that's what he's telling us here is, guys, you're gonna have to keep coming back to me over and over again each day and, and feed your heart on a remembrance of my love for you. He's telling us to slake your thirst by drinking from a well that tells you, guys, you don't have to perform to get it. You don't have to chase after anything to get it. I've already earned it for you, so drink it up. Listen, so much of the Christian life isn't about doing things, it's about remembering. Remember who you are. Remember that Jesus came to this earth to live and die for you. Remember that he was willing to go to the cross to rescue you. Remember that you are now a loved, cherished, adopted child of the king. And if you can remember that, it takes away the hunger of the things of this world. I mean, who wants to spend their lives trying to earn respect and validation and achievement when the greatest achievement possible being made right and holy and beautiful and acceptable by the creator of the universe has already been done for you as a free gift. And so Jesus says, guys, listen to the description of my children. Read through these beatitudes often to refresh your heart and then ask that God would make you more and more like that each day. Ask that God would take away your fears of persecution for standing out like that. Ask that he would take away your fears that if you trust him like that, you might miss out on something better out there. But then also there are some actions of self-discipline that you can take positively to pursue this. But essentially avoiding the deeds of darkness. I mean, all too often, you, you guys know this, we dab at the corners of darkness with one foot trying to find life in the things of this world while the other is trying to hang on to the forgiveness of God. Let me just say this straight out. Be careful what, I'll give you some, what, be careful what movies you allow yourself to watch. I, I understand, because I watch TV, that the best acted shows with the richest storylines are filled with nudity and sex. And you can only stand so much of the shallow Hallmark Channel, right? But, but the more you take in those images of sex, the more it colors your expectations, the more it sours your own marriage bed, and the less satisfied you're gonna be with the real thing, which is nothing like the movies. Be careful what music you listen to. Listen, I, I, I've never been one who believes in even the concept of Christian music. I don't think there, it, Christian music doesn't exist. All music is made by God and it glorifies him in one way or another but you've got to be very careful of the lyrics you let into your heart. If you're singing about using women as objects for men's pleasure or about defying and throwing off all authority or even something as just inane as the greatest love of all is happening inside of me, I'm learning to love myself. I'm in love with myself. You don't want that kind of message. You need the love of Jesus. 
Or maybe lyrics that encourage you to chase after your own dreams, to find your own definition of happiness. That's the Disney motto. You can do it. It's out there. Just go grab it and find it. It's going to cloud for your heart the freeing message of the gospel. The shadows of darkness will begin to fill you with doubt. And you'll begin to think, well, maybe those alternatives could be better. Maybe also we need to be careful with our time. The world today that we live in seems to have fallen into the belief that the only real happiness that we can find is a virtual happiness, a reality that you can create and control and manipulate on your own. And whether that's with video games or with porn, the more that you indulge yourself in fantasy, the less real the hope of the gospel will become to you. The gospel will become something, well, that's nice, but does it help me create my own version of reality? And you'll begin to think that way as a default. Now listen, obviously I'm not saying to withdraw yourself from the world. I'm not against games, I'm not against movies, I'm not against fantasy, I'm not saying that. We've already said how withdrawing from the world is wrong, but it's just as wrong to assimilate to the values of this world as it is to withdraw from them. And your calling is to engage the world as you live salty lives according to the pattern of the Beatitudes a pattern that naturally flows to the degree that you're finding your security in Jesus. And Jesus says, my goal for you guys isn't always to bring you happiness. I'm sorry to have to tell you this. His goal is not to bring you comfort. Jesus says, I'm not promising you heaven on earth. That's still coming later on. My goal is that you would so rest in my love for you that it would produce salty lives that stand out in a self-indulgent world. And that the light of your character would be so noticeable that people would be drawn to ask, how do you live like that? Where do you get that kind of peace and stability? Why would you love somebody like me when you're supposed to hate me? And we do that so that we can offer them the light of the gospel. And even offering people the light of the gospel has a further goal beyond it, Jesus says. And it's so that they might glorify God too with their lives. And listen, I think essentially what Jesus is after here today is to stay out of the ditches of, uh, of safely withdrawing from the world or becoming too much like the world uh, so that there's nothing distinctly salty about us anymore, but to walk the line of the gospel where we find our identity in Christ so that we can provide hope for those who are slaves to trying to find their identity in things that simply cannot save them. And this means that we don't, uh, bash or look down on the brokenness of the world around us, but rather, rather we, we develop a deep compassion for people who, like Jesus said, they're, they're like sheep wandering around without a shepherd. I mean, listen, our job here is not to recruit people to city church, but to rescue people from darkness. Listen, Jesus lived and died for us that we might become renewed people of the light in order that we might draw others to the light so that all men might glorify God. That's his calling for us. And our world offers so many alternatives that are various versions of darkness that leads to death. And we, and we alone, as amazing as this is, Jesus says, have the light within us to lead them out of the darkness. That's why we're here. You're not here to find life in the things of this world and then maybe throw Jesus in too. He is your life. You're not here simply to be looking forward to heaven one day and ignoring everything around you. You are called like Jesus to give everything up and to sacrifice your very life that you might bring life to others. And what this means is that we should be living such radically different lives 
that all the liberals around you think you're a conservative and all the conservatives around you think you're a liberal and everybody is confused by who you are because they notice that you have a life apart from the world's definition of success, that you're not bothered by the obstacles that bring others down. And as a result, you, you love those that the world expects you to hate because you disagree with them. And you hate the things that the world expects you to love because everybody's finding life in those things, but not you, because you already have a life in Jesus and it's given to you as a free gift. Jesus says, live as children of the light. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's why you're here. It's what you're supposed to do. That is the end goal and sum and total of what your life on this earth is to be about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we have to honestly confess that we really do a bad job of this because we live in a world that just inundates us with um, counterfeits and alternatives. And I suppose the world always has, but now every philosophy imaginable in the world is not only out there, but it's, it's visualized, it's sung, it's acted, it's displayed um, live and in living color before our eyes every day. And it's so difficult to live as salt and light in a world that, uh, that screams to us to live for ourselves and for our own glory. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help for us not to forget who we are, that we would come back every day over and over again to drink from the well of life, that we may, might be reminded of who we are and why we're here and what our purpose in life is all about. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.